Chapter Seven, Part Two of The Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Arrived at home, Laura, as soon as she had looked up the definition of pergola in the dictionary, lost no time in telephoning to Mrs. Cressler. What? this latter cried when she told her the news that sheldon corthell back again well dear me if he wasn't the last person in my mind i do remember the lovely windows he used to paint and how refined and elegant he always was and the loveliest hands and voice he's to dine with us to-night and i want you and mr cressler to come oh laura child i just simply can't charlie's got a man from milwaukee coming here to-night and i've got to feed him isn't it too provoking i've got to sit and listen to those two clattering about commissions and percentages and all when i might be hearing sheldon corthell talk art and poetry and stained glass i declare i never have any luck at a quarter to six that evening laura sat in the library before the fireplace in her black velvet dinner gown cutting the pages of a new novel the ivory cutter as it turned and glanced in her hand appearing to be a mere prolongation of her slender fingers but she was not interested in the book and from time to time glanced nervously at the clock upon the mantel-shelf over her head Jadwin was not home yet, and she was distressed at the thought of keeping dinner waiting. He usually came back from downtown at five o'clock, and even earlier. Today she had expected that quite possibly the business implied in the Liverpool cable of the morning might detain him, but surely he should be home by now, and as the minutes passed she listened more and more anxiously for the sound of hoofs on the driveway at the side of the house. At five minutes of the hour, when Corthell was announced, there was still no sign of her husband. But as she was crossing the hall on her way to the drawing-room, one of the servants informed her that Mr. Jadwin had just telephoned that he would be home in half an hour. "'Is he on the telephone now?' she asked quickly. "'Where did he telephone from?' But it appeared that Jadwin had hung up without mentioning his whereabouts. "'The buggy come home.' said the servant miss jadwin told jarvis not to wait he said he would come in the street cars laura reflected that she could delay dinner a half an hour and gave orders to that effect we shall have to wait a little she explained to corthell as they exchanged greetings in the drawing-room curtis has some special business on hand today and is half an hour late they sat down on either side of the fireplace in the lofty apartment with its sombre hangings of wine-coloured brocade and thick muffling rugs and for upwards of three-quarters of an hour corthell interested her with his description of his life in the cathedral towns of northern italy but at the end of that time dinner was announced has mr jadwin come in yet laura asked of the servant no madam she bit her lip in vexation can't imagine what can keep curtis so late she murmured well she added at the end of her resources we must make the best of it i think we will go in mr corthell without waiting curtis must be here soon now but as a matter of fact he was not in the great dining-room filled with a dull crimson light the air just touched with the scent of lilies of the valley corthell and mrs jadwin dined alone 
i suppose observed the artist that mr jadwin is a very busy man oh no laura answered his real estate he says runs itself and as a rule mr gretry manages most of his board of trade business it is only occasionally that anything keeps him downtown late i scolded him this morning however about his speculating and made him promise not to do so much of it i hate speculation it seems to absorb some men so and i don't believe it's right for a man to allow himself to become absorbed altogether in business oh, why limit one's absorption to business replied corthell sipping his wine is it right for one to be absorbed altogether in anything even in art even in religion oh religion i don't know she protested isn't that certain contribution he hazarded which we make to the general welfare over and above our own individual work isn't that the essential i suppose of course that we must hoe each of us his own little row but it's the stroke or two we give to our neighbor's row don't you think that helps most to cultivate the field but doesn't religion mean more than a stroke or two she ventured to reply i'm not so sure he answered thoughtfully if the stroke or two is taken from one's own work instead of being given in excess of it uh, one must do one's own hoeing first that's the foundation of things a religion that would mean to be altogether absorbed in my neighbor's hoeing would be genuinely pernicious surely my row meanwhile would lie open to weeds but if your neighbor's row grew flowers unfortunately weeds grow faster than the flowers and the weeds of my row would spread until they choked and killed my neighbor's flowers i am sure that seems selfish though she persisted suppose my neighbor were maimed or halt or blind his poor little row would never be finished my stroke or two would not help very much yes but every row lies between two others you know the hoer on the far side of the cripple's row would contribute a stroke or two as well as you no he went on i am sure one's first duty is to do one's own work it seems to me that a work accomplished benefits the whole world the people pro rata if we help another at the expense of our work instead of in excess of it we benefit only the individual and pro rata again rob the people a little good contributed by everybody to the race is of more infinitely more importance than a great deal of good contributed by one individual to another yes she admitted beginning at last to be convinced i see what you mean but one must think very large to see that it never occurred to me before the individual i laura jadwin counts for nothing it is the type to which i belong that's important the mould the form the sort of composite photograph of hundreds of thousands of laura jadwins yes she continued her brows bent her mind hard at work what i am the little things that distinguish me from everybody else those pass away very quickly are very ephemeral but the type laura jadwin that always remains doesn't it one must help building up only the permanent things then let's see 
the individual may deteriorate but the type always grows better yes i think one can say that at least the type never recedes he prompted oh it began good she cried as though at a discovery and can never go back to that original good something keeps it from going below a certain point and it is left to us to lift it higher and higher no the type can't be bad of course the type is more important than the individual and that something that keeps it from going below a certain point is god nor nature so that god and nature she cried again work together no no they are one and the same thing mm, there don't you see he remarked smiling back at her how simple it is oh exclaimed laura with a deep breath isn't it beautiful she put her hand to her forehead with a little laugh of deprecation my she said but those things make you think dinner was over before she was aware of it and they were still talking animatedly as they rose from the table we will have our coffee in the art gallery laura said and please smoke he lit a cigarette and the two passed into the great glass-roofed rotunda here is the one i like best said laura standing before the bougereau yes he queried observing the picture thoughtfully i suppose he remarked it is because it demands less of you than some others i see what you mean it pleases you because it satisfies you so easily you can grasp it without any effort oh i don't know she ventured uh, bougereau fills a place i know it he answered but uh, i cannot persuade myself to admire his art but she faltered i thought that bougereau was considered the greatest one of the greatest his wonderful flesh tints the drawing and coloring but i think you will see he told her if you think about it that for all there is in his picture back of it a, a fine hanging a beautiful vase would have exactly the same value on your wall now on the other hand take this picture he indicated a small canvas to the right of the bathing nymphs representing a twilight landscape oh that one said laura we bought that here in america in new york that's by a western artist i i never noticed it much i'm afraid but now look at it said corthell don't you know that the artist saw something more than trees and a pool and afterglow he had that feeling of night coming on as he sat there before his sketching easel on the edge of that little pool he heard the frogs beginning to pipe i'm sure the touch of the night mist was on his hands and he was very lonely and even a little sad in those deep shadows under the trees he put something of himself the gloom and the sadness that he felt at the moment and that little pool still and black and sombre why the whole thing is the tragedy of a life full of dark hidden secrets and the little pool is a heart no one can say how deep it is or what dreadful thing one would find at the bottom or what drowned hopes or what sunken ambitions that little pool says one word as plain as if it were whispered in the ear 
despair. Yes, I prefer it to the nymphs. I am very much ashamed, returned Laura, that I could not see it all before for myself. But I see it now. It is better, of course. I, I shall come in here often now and study it. Of all the rooms in our house, this is the one I like best. But I am afraid it has been more because of the organ than of the pictures. Corthell turned about. Oh, the grand noble organ, he murmured. I envy you this of all your treasures. May I play for you? Something to compensate for the dreadful, despairing little tarn of the picture. I should love to have you, she told him. He asked permission to lower the lights, and, stepping outside the door an instant, pressed the buttons that extinguished all but a very few of them. After he had done this, he came back to the organ, and detached the self-playing arrangement without comment, and seated himself at the console. Laura lay back in a long chair close at hand. The moment was propitious. The artist's profile silhouetted itself against the shade of a light that burned at the side of the organ, and that gave light to the keyboard. And on this keyboard, full in the reflection, lay his long, slim hands. They were the only things that moved in the room, and the chords and bars of Mendelssohn's Consolation seemed, as he played, to flow not from the instrument, but like some invisible ether from his fingertips themselves. "'You hear,' he said to Laura, "'the effect of questions and answer in this. The questions are passionate and tumultuous and varied, but the answer is always the same, always calm and soothing and dignified.' She answered with a long breath, speaking just above a whisper. "'Oh, yes, yes, I understand.' He finished and turned toward her a moment. "'Possibly not a very high order of art,' he said. "'A little too easy, perhaps, like the Bougereau. "'But consolation should appeal very simply and directly, after all. "'Do you care for Beethoven?' "'I, I am afraid,' began Laura. "'But he had continued without waiting for her reply. "'You remember this, the Appassionato, the F minor sonata, just the second movement.' But when he had finished, Laura begged him to continue. Please go on, she said. Play anything. You can't tell how I love it. Here is something I've always liked, he answered, turning back to the keyboard. It is the Mephisto Walzer of Liszt. He has adapted it himself from his own orchestral score very ingeniously. It is difficult to render on the organ, but I think you can get the idea of it. As he spoke, he began playing, his head very slightly moving to the rhythm of the piece. At the beginning of each new theme, and without interrupting his playing, he offered a word of explanation. Very vivid, arabesque this, don't you think? And now this movement, isn't it reckless and capricious, like a woman who hesitates and then takes the leap? Yet there's a certain nobility there, feeling for ideals. You see it, of course. And all the while, this undercurrent of the sensual, and that feline, eager sentiment, and here, I think, is the best part of it, the very essence of passion, the voluptuousness that is a veritable anguish. 
these long, slow rhythms, tortured, languishing, really dying, that reminds one of Phaedra, Venus tout entière, and the rest of it, and Wagner has the same. You find it again in Isolde's motif, continually. Laura was transfixed, all but transported. Here was something better than Guno and Verdi, something above and beyond the obvious one, two, three, one, two, three of the opera scores as she knew them and played them, music she understood with an intuitive quickness, and those prolonged chords of lists, heavy and clogged and cloying with passion, reached some hitherto untouched string within her heart and with resistless power twanged it so that the vibration of it shook her entire being and left her quivering and breathless, the tears in her eyes, her hands clasped till the knuckles whitened. She felt all at once as though a whole new world were open to her. She stood on Pisgah, and she was ashamed and confused at her ignorance of those things which Corthell tactfully assumed that she knew as a matter of course. What wonderful pleasures she had ignored! How infinitely removed from her had been the real world of art and artists of which Corthell was a part! Ah, but she would make amends now! No more Verdi and Bougereau! She would get rid of the bathing nymphs! Never, never again would she play the anvil chorus! Corthell should select her pictures, and should play to her from Liszt and Beethoven that music which evoked all the turbulent emotion, all the impetuosity and fire and exaltation that she felt was hers. She wondered at herself. Surely, surely there were two Laura Jadwins, one calm and even and steady, loving the quiet life, loving her home, finding a pleasure in the duties of the housewife. This was the Laura who liked plain, homely, matter-of-fact Mrs. Cressler, who adored her husband, who delighted in Mr. Howell's novels, who abjured society and the formal conventions, who went to church every Sunday, and who was afraid of her own elevator. But at moments such as this, she knew that there was another Laura Jadwin, the Laura Jadwin who might have been a great actress, who had a temperament, who was impulsive, this was the Laura of the Grand Manor, who played the role of the great lady from room to room of her vast house, who read Meredith, who reveled in swift gallops through the park on jet-black long-tailed horses, who affected black velvet, black jet, and black lace in her gowns, who was conscious and proud of her pale, stately beauty, the Laura Jadwin, in fine, who delighted to recline in a long chair in the dim, beautiful picture gallery and listen with half-shut eyes to the great golden organ thrilling to the passion of Beethoven and Liszt. End of chapter 7, part 2